welcome. I'm Susan Bright, Regional Managing Partner for the UK and Africa at Hogan Lovells and leader of our Brexit Task Force. This is the latest webinar in our Brexit series, Navigating the Negotiations. Our last webinar last month, we focused on the mechanics of what happens next and the practical measures which can help your business adapt to the known unknowns ahead. Last week was very interesting for Brexit. The UK government published a report on no-deal preparedness, which highlights some serious concerns about lack of preparation by businesses. It's more critical than ever for us to be doing what we can to mitigate the impact of a no-deal exit. Many clients are now stepping up their planning and execution of their contingency plans. The report also acknowledges that the government's own preparations are behind schedule, with a substantial proportion of critical measures not yet completed. Against that background, we're going to see where things currently stand and hear from some of our colleagues in various of the EU 27 countries. They're going to be providing insights on how government and industry is preparing in each of those jurisdictions. We will also have a little spotlight on the UK High Court's judgment in the closely watched case of Canary Wharf and others against the European Medicines Agency, which found that the European Medicines Agency remains bound by the terms of its lease of its London offices, notwithstanding Brexit. So today we're going to cover the latest developments, uh, the view from a number of countries in the EU27, and also, as I said, an insight from our real estate team. So I'm really pleased today to be joined by a large number of my colleagues. Uh, first up, there's Andrew Eaton, who's an associate in our London public law and policy team. Then Tim Brandy, who's a corporate partner in our Frankfurt office. Hein van den Bos, who's a partner specialising particularly in life sciences, who's based in Amsterdam. Jeff Greenbaum, who's a partner in our Rome office, who focuses on financial regulation. Jose Maria Balagna, a corporate partner from Madrid. Victor Levy, who's a senior associate in our Paris team. Lourdes Catrain, who's a partner in our trade practice, who's based in Brussels. And finally, Ben Willis, who's an associate in our real estate practice in London. So to start off, we will have our usual slot from Andrew Eaton taking us through the latest developments. Andrew, over to you. Thank you, Susan. With 25 days to go, the final countdown to Brexit is well and truly on. There is still no clarity as to whether a deal will be secured before exit day. However, developments in the last week have at least provided a clearer picture of how events are likely to unfold over the next three weeks or so. The Prime Minister's strategy since around mid-January, when her withdrawal agreement was first rejected by Parliament, has been to wind down the clock until 29th of March by firstly seeking to renegotiate the terms of the controversial Irish backstop with the EU, and secondly, maintaining the pretense in the UK that if Parliament rejects her deal a second time, the only possible outcomes on the 29th of March would either be no deal or no Brexit. Last week, pressure from government ministers who threatened to quit the government if the Prime Minister did not allow MPs to vote on a possible extension to the Article 50 period, forced the Prime Minister to change course. This concession by the Prime Minister has laid out the process for the next few weeks. First, the Prime Minister has committed to bringing her negotiated deal to a meaningful vote by the 12th of March, that is next Tuesday, at the latest. This gives the government just one more week to secure meaningful changes to the backstop and or 
overturn the substantial opposition to the deal in Parliament before holding a second meaningful vote. The EU has so far held its position that it will not uh, reopen negotiations on the terms of the withdrawal agreement. So the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox QC, is reportedly in last-ditch negotiations with the EU this week to secure some form of legally binding changes to the backstop via a protocol, appendix or codicil, which would instead sit alongside the withdrawal agreement. Whether the government will secure sufficiently meaningful changes to the backstop to allow enough MPs to get behind the deal without losing face remains to be seen. As a reminder, the government lost the first meaningful vote by a margin of 230 votes, the largest ever defeat in the history of Parliament. If the deal passes on the second meaningful vote on the 12th of March, the government will need to pass legislation to implement the deal before exit day. This might still be possible before the 29th of March, but it is widely believed there is no longer sufficient time to do so, in which case the government would need to seek a small technical extension of the Article 50 period. The EU would almost certainly grant such an extension, which would be likely to be for a period of weeks. The UK would then leave the EU and enter the transitional period provided for under the withdrawal agreement, most likely in April or May this year. But what happens next if the deal falls again in the second meaningful vote next Tuesday? The Prime Minister has committed to bring forward a vote a day later, on the 13th of March, on whether Parliament supports pursuing a no-deal outcome. This means Parliament has now been promised the opportunity to block the government pursuing as its policy objective, leaving the EU with no deal. But it's important to note that Parliament opposing no deal in this vote would not prevent it from happening by accident. That is because, as it stands, a no-deal Brexit remains the default outcome unless and until the UK either agrees a deal, stops Brexit altogether or pushes back the exit date. So assuming that Parliament votes against the UK leaving with no deal on the 13th of March, the Prime Minister has then committed to bring forward a further vote on the following day, on the 14th of March, on whether Parliament supports requesting an extension to the Article 50 period. It is not yet clear what the proposed length of the extension would be, but the Prime Minister has suggested it would be short and in any event not beyond the end of June 2019. Even if Parliament votes for such an extension, any extension of the Article 50 period must be unanimously approved by the EU27 leaders. Many European leaders have already said that the EU27 will not accept an extension that simply postpones a no-deal Brexit by a period of months, and it therefore seems likely that the UK will need to state explicitly what it plans to do during the extended period to resolve the impasse, such as, for example, hold a second referendum. As such, the Prime Minister's current proposal of a short extension up to the end of June with no plan as to what to do during the period will almost certainly be rebuffed by the 27. <clears throat> it will then be for the UK to decide what terms of an extension are acceptable to it to avoid an accidental no deal occurring on the 29th of March if no extension is agreed. So what does all of this mean for businesses trying to plan for life beyond the 29th of March? Well, we may finally have reached the now-or-never moment for Theresa May's deal. If the deal is rejected by Parliament for a second time on the 12th of March, there may be some support in Parliament for one final push for concessions from the EU27 at the next European summit on the 21st and 22nd of March. But if the, deal, if the defeat of the deal is again substantial, 
many are likely to conclude that the UK needs a change of direction. The UK could be forced to decide very quickly what that new direction should be if the EU were to insist, perhaps even at the European summit, that the UK must justify a request for an extension by explaining what it intends to do during the extended period. Parliament also looks set to rule out pursuing no deal in a vote on the 13th of March. However, as I said, doing so will not prevent an accidental no deal. Given the potential controversy surrounding the terms of any extension of Article 50, which must be agreed before the 29th of March, the risk clearly remains that the UK and the EU could fail to agree an extension, meaning the UK would instead fall out of the EU without a deal or an extension on the 29th of March, and businesses should continue to plan accordingly. Andrew, thank you very much for setting the scene. Um, we're now going to turn to colleagues in the various EU 27 countries, and the question to each of you is, how is your government and industry preparing for a no-deal scenario? So first, um, can we go to Tim Brandy in our Frankfurt office to give us the view from Germany? Tim. Thank you, Susan. Well, the German government and the German parliament are, of course, still hoping for an orderly withdrawal of the United Kingdom. But at the same time, they've taken precautions in case that it proves impossible to come to a comprehensive withdrawal agreement. There are currently, uh, in particular, two uh, laws in the parliamentary process dealing with a no-deal Brexit. Um, both of them have been adopted by the lower chamber of the German parliament, the Bundestag, on 21st February 2019, and are currently being reviewed and discussed by the upper chamber. The one law deals with social security issues, and it aims to help German citizens living and working in the UK and British citizens living and working in Germany at the point of, of time of an unnegotiated withdrawal. Both groups are to retain their social insurance protections, such as health insurance, nursing care insurance, unemployment insurance, and the like. Also, this uh, law stipulates to um, help British trainees and students that have begun a course of training or a degree course in Germany and vice versa. And both of them will be able to complete their education and obtain their degrees. Also, they will be entitled to student loans under the German so-called BAföG scheme, a student support scheme, even in case of a non-deal Brexit. The other um, a major law uh, deals with tax issues and with financial services issues. It's a so-called Brexit Tax Accompanying Act, and the tax part of it deals with cases in which the Brexit as such, without any action on the part of the taxpayer, results in an undesirable legal consequence uh, for the taxpayer. It, and this law, for example, aims to prevent a retroactive taxation of profits that could result from an, a no-deal Brexit. This law, as I said, contains also a financial services um, element. And in that part of the law, uh, there are provisions that would allow the German financial uh, supervisor, the BaFin, to allow UK-based um, businesses that operate also in Germany on a cross-border basis uh, or passport basis to continue their existing business for an interim period, lasting until the end of 2020 at the latest. 
So this is only allowing existing business to continue for a while, but not any new business. The scope, modalities, and duration of the um, continuing allowance of business will be determined by BaFin either on an individual basis or on a general basis. German businesses are, of course, continuing to prepare for the no-deal uh, no Brexit, um, but the, the state of preparation is uh, very different depending on whether you are dealing with large enterprises or smaller or mid-sized enterprises. The German banks generally consider themselves to be rather well prepared for Brexit, but they complain that their customers, their business customers, are slow in implementing the proposals um, by the German banks to do the repapering work in order to allow for financing arrangements to continue in case of a no-deal Brexit. A major industry in Germany is, of course, the automotive industry. It has to prepare in various manners. I already explained uh, at the last webinar that, for example, BMW is planning to interrupt the production of the Mini in UK uh, during uh, the months of April and May in, in order to sort of accelerate the summer break. Of course, this will all be disturbed if now there's a, perhaps a delay of the Brexit taking place so that they have to rearrange the planning. In any event, the automotive industry is uh, piling up uh, warehouse stocks in order to be prepared for an um, unnegotiated Brexit. The same applies for pharmaceutical uh, industries and other sort of production-oriented industries. Logistic companies are looking for alternative transport routes and are staffing up personnel massively in order to deal with the customs issues and custom, increased custom work that will arise in case of a no-deal exit. So that's a brief overview on Germany. Thank you, and back to you, Susan. Thank you very much, Tim. That's uh, very, very helpful. Um, let's now move to Hein, who's uh, based in the Netherlands, for an update from you. Thank you, Susan. So in the Netherlands, similar to Germany, um, a draft Brexit law was adopted by Parliament, that is, by the lower house of Parliament, and it is now being discussed in the Senate. Separate from um, legislation, Dutch government has been publishing a lot of information um, aimed at citizens, aimed at business, explaining the consequences of Brexit generally and of a no-deal Brexit specifically. Dutch government's done its own contingency planning, but also constantly stresses the importance of businesses doing their own preparatory work, deal or no deal. Most recently, on the 28th of February, so last week, Dutch government sent a um, letter with an overview to Parliament explaining all sorts of things it is doing in preparing for no-deal Brexit. Before going into the detail of those preparations, Dutch government notes the possibility of an extension of Article 50 and says that the Dutch government um, is uh, generally favorable towards an extension, provided, however, that there is, um, well, that there is a clear view of a possible solution within that extension period, noting that continuation of uncertainty um, remains um, generally uncertain and bad for business. So in terms of no-deal contingency planning, um, Dutch government 
noted that it is exchanging its preparatory work with the governments of Germany, Ireland, Belgium and France to align activities and it has published a number of letters and documents on topics ranging from um, investment, tax, professional qualifications for physicians, for example, the Students Exchange Program under Erasmus, Social Security, medical devices, and medicinal products. Two of the um, government authorities in the Netherlands that um, are really preparing for a no-deal Brexit are Customs and the Dutch Food and Consumer Products Safety Authority, known in Dutch as the NVWA. Both of them have um, taken on additional staff to prepare for Brexit and especially for a no-deal Brexit. Customs noted, however, last week that it did not see any significant increase in companies approaching Customs, and Customs really urges um, business to prepare for Brexit and to contact Customs. Then Dutch government has been very um, focused on the life sciences and healthcare industry, also in view of the relocation of the European Medicines Agency, already um, mentioned briefly at the beginning, from London to Amsterdam. Um, Dutch government is um, publishing information on um, the consequences of a no-deal Brexit for medicinal products, for human tissues and cells, and also for medical devices. And specifically for medical devices, Dutch government last week again urged um, companies active in the area of medical devices to be prepared to prepare for no-deal Brexit because apparently the Minister of Medical Care um, had the impression that um, a significant number of medical devices company is not yet well enough prepared. So generally, Dutch government is preparing but really stresses the responsibility of companies to prepare themselves and Dutch government has the impression that companies are not yet um, sufficiently prepared for a no-deal Brexit. Thank you, Susan. Thank you very much, Heinz. Um, we'll now turn to Italy and to my colleague, uh, Jeff Greenbaum, who will take us through the current position there. Jeff. Well, thank you, Susan. To some surprise, Italy is not as far advanced in Brexit preparations as Germany and Netherlands. There was a press release of the Ministry of Finance on January 24th promising that they will aim to ensure the operational continuity of both markets and intermediaries. Um, however, um, perhaps troublesome in a troublesome fashion, they indicated that the provisions will be differentiated according to the nature of the intermediaries involved, taken into account the applicable European and national laws and regulations. So we know there's this general press release of the bank uh, of, of the treasury. We don't know what's going to be in the implementing rules. Each of the uh, appropriate regulators, Bank of Italy, Consab, Vescovas, have um, have joined together to provide what they think should be in this supporting decree. Um, the Treasury and the Bank of Italy international meetings have promised that um, it should not be that uh, draconian, but I follow the old uh, saying of Solon uh, when talking to 
uh, Croesus, call no man uh, happy until he is dead. Until we see them, we won't know what's going to be in the implementing decree. Um, and so, unfortunately, the Treasury has also announced that they don't expect to issue the decree until the very last minute because they don't want to influence the market. So we're going to have to watch this space very clear, closely. Another thing that might be of interest is in a couple of weeks ago, the Bank of Italy has sent out uh, a request to all banks, payment institutions, and e-money institutions that provide uh, services in Italy you know, on a freedom to provide services basis, um, uh, request to send uh, their Italian customers detailed personal and personalized information about the impact of Brexit. So uh, many of the people will be um, considering what they need to say for the Bank of Italy in this regard. Back to you, Susan. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, we're now going to move west um, to Jose Maria um, to have a look at how the Spanish government is handling the prospect of no deal. Jose Maria. Thank you, Susan. Um, Spain commenced uh, its no deal Brexit preparations uh, in January. It was a report published by government. Uh, and since then, um, two types of measures have been um, First of all, some logistical measures. Um, there has been an agreement to hire civil servants to support public services, potentially disrupted by Brexit in the amount of 1,735, basically to reinforce control of people at uh, borders, customs control, and health control. Um, the uh, Spanish Export Insurance Agency uh, has launched a special program to uh, support companies that are active in the uh, UK market and those uh, choosing to move their activities to other markets. A second type of measures are uh, communication measures, basically the websites and a lot of uh, conferences and guidelines provided by um, uh, chambers of commerce as well as by the government itself to the industry players. But certainly the, uh, the most important element to highlight in preparation for a no-deal Brexit is a, uh, a royal decree which was published last Saturday, uh, 2nd of March, uh, which contains a whole set of measures in a wide number of areas. First of all, it's worth noting that the um, uh, royal decree applies to the UK and Gibraltar. And Gibraltar is referred to as a colony. Uh, it is the second time that the Spanish government uses this term recently in order to emphasize to the international community that it considers Gibraltar as part of the Spanish territory. The measures contained in the uh, royal decree are interim, on the one hand, and based on the principle of reciprocity. Um, so that when it's so provided in the royal decree, the measures will be suspended in two months if the UK authorities do not grant reciprocal treatment to the Spanish legal entities or individuals. As I said, there are a num number of measures 
Um, but I will just focus my attention in two. Uh, number one, measures in the area of citizens, uh, in, of people. Uh, as you probably know, there are more than 300,000 permanent UK residents in Spain, and probably 100,000 living in Spain on a temporary basis or who have not yet requested a residence. All these people will be granted a permanent residence status and the residence will be legal. Uh, the documentation will have to be submitted within 21 months and as very typical in Spain, a number of uh, conditions and documents, apostille and so on, will have to be provided. Also importantly, as regards medical assistance, Spain will continue to provide medical assistance in the same terms and conditions established before the withdrawal of the UK, to the extent that two conditions are met. One, the UK guarantees the same conditions to individuals who are entitled to receive medical care by the Spanish system. Number two, that the UK reimburses Spain such expenses. It's worth noting that uh, there are approximately 150,000 Spanish residents in the UK, and this figure could be higher. So the element of reciprocity is particularly important uh, for the Spanish government. Uh, second area I wanted to highlight is financial services. The government has uh, enacted some measures to complement, to um, add to the measures enacted by the Commission, the European Commission. It clearly confirms that financial contracts entered into by financial entities authorized or registered in the UK or Gibraltar prior to the withdrawal will continue to be enforced. However, a new authorization will be required for the renewal of such contracts. The amendments that imply new services being rendered in Spain or which affect the key undertakings of the respective parties. And finally, new contracts. The authorization or registration in the UK or Gibraltar granted to a financial entity, which will continue to be valid, will be so for nine months after withdrawal. In such periods, there should be an orderly termination or transfer of the contract to a duly authorized entity, or the authorization should be requested in Spain, including through the incorporation of a Spanish subsidiary. As said before, the royal decree contains authorization for civil servants, customs, public procurement, road transport, and even for driving licenses if you happen to hire a car, and you're British, you happen to drive a car after Brexit in Spain. The reaction by the UK ambassador in Spain was of satisfaction for the fact of the Spanish government approving a detailed contingency package as well as pleased by the significant guarantees in matters such as residence and access to the health system by UK residents in Spain. So that will be all for me. Thank you very much, Jose Maria. Um, we're now going to move north to Paris and to Victor, who um, will update us on the current situation in France. Victor. Thank you, Susan. So in France, I mean, in terms of general context, pretty much aligned with other countries in the sense that while France is hoping for an orderly withdrawal of the UK, Macron is still putting pressure on uh, 
on the UK to make a decision. Last week, for instance, he insisted that the Brexit deal could not be renegotiated and any extension of Article 50 should be granted if it's justified and with more clarity on the next steps. With respect to the contingency planning, France has adopted a quite comprehensive plan at this stage. On January 19th, the government was empowered to take ordinances to prepare for a no-deal scenario. The ordinances allow the government to enact law without having a vote at the parliament, so it's a relatively efficient process. As a result, between January 23rd and February 13th, six ordinances were already published concerning railway safety and the channel tunnel, goods and people movements by road, financial services, rights of residents uh, of British citizens in, in France, also some defense-related products, and lastly, other contingency rules relating mainly to customs. So I will not go into details for each of these ordinances, but uh, I will just have a few words on the question of residency, financial services, and the other contingency rules relating to customs. The overreaching principles of these rules are the continuity, trying to achieve continuity of services and rights, reciprocity, just like in Spain, and most of the rules adopted by France are conditioned on the fact that their citizens or companies would benefit from the same rules in the UK, and also their transitory nature. A lot of rules are only there for a year or two with a possibility to be renegotiated at a later stage. So, for the rights of residents of, uh, of residents of British citizens in France, um, the, the ordinance is organized around three pillars, residency itself, then social benefits, and employment. With respect to residency, uh, the British citizens living in France will have from three months to a year, it still needs to be decided by a decree, to uh, file for a residence permit. During that time, they can obviously stay in France. Uh, the, the ordinance are already setting some conditions to obtain the residence permit. For instance, a five-year residency in France is already enough to be able to be granted a permit. With respect to social rights and the healthcare system, it would be provided to British citizens for a year to two years. It still needs to be decided uh, whether it would be a year or two or in between. However, this is conditioned by reciprocity uh, by the UK for the French citizens. Uh, with respect to employment, it's again the same type of principle. People who are currently working in France uh, UK citizens will have the right to continue working in France, even if the job title or diplomas were conditioned on having uh, EU member state citizenship. Otherwise, this is still uh, going to be conditioned on the fact that the UK will grant similar rights to French citizens. With respect to financial services now, uh, we have various set of rules in the ordinance. First, concerning insurance contracts, this was one of the main issues 
spotted in France was the fact that some insurance companies uh, had an EU, were UK entities with an EU passport, and the question was what will happen to the contract, and especially will the French citizens having contracted with these companies be protected. So what the ordinance provides is that all the contracts that are valid now will be enforceable, but they will not be renewable, and they should not entail any new payments of additional premiums. Uh, in, the direct, in the ordinance relating to financial services, there is also a significant part about the continuity of derivative products. Uh, to most of these products were initially regulated by ISDAE uh, framework agreements. These agreements were under UK law and with UK tribunals being uh, having jurisdictions over such contracts. What France has done now was to modify their own rules so that ISDA French framework agreements could be put in place and so that French uh, tribunals could be competent to rule on those contracts. Uh, another word on now the trans uh, transitionary measures relating to customs. Here, France has already announced some significant, uh, some significant investments, about 50 million euros in French ports and airports. Also, hiring 580 civil servants, and it has also changed uh, some of these its rules relating to public procurement in a just transitionary manner to allow the port and airport to rapidly accelerate investments uh, if needed to improve their infrastructure. Well, now this is, uh, this is all for me. Thank you, Susan. Thank you very much indeed, Victor. Um, we'll now move to Brussels um, and ask Lourdes if she could give us an update on the state of play there. Uh, Lourdes, over to you. Thank you, Susan. This week, Brussels is quieter than usual. Many Belgians and officials working for the EU institutions are off for carnival vacation. And all the eyes are put on the EU high-level delegation that is crossing the Atlantic to discuss the future EU-US trade negotiations and, very importantly, the, EU, the US possible threat on a 25% tariff on European cars. There are two issues which are at the forefront of the Brexit discussions in Brussels. One is the technical discussions between the EU and the UK officials on the Irish backstop, and the second one is the length of the potential extension of the Article 50 negotiations, which currently expire on 29th of March. On the Irish backstop that intends to maintain an open border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, until the EU and the UK agree on their future relations. will not be renegotiated. As Andrew said, the EU and the UK are having technical discussions to agree on some sort of protocol that would set out the intentionally temporary nature of the Irish backstop. 
To this end, Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator, has said that the backstop must stay part of the withdrawal agreement, but that the bloc was ready to give further guarantees, assurances, and clarifications that the backstop should only be temporary. Last Friday, the 1st of March, during a meeting of the EU ambassadors in Brussels, Michel Barnier warned that there has been no progress in recent negotiations with the UK. The other key issue in the Brussels scene is the length of an extension of Article 50 beyond the 29th of March 2019. The Brussels view is that the length will depend on the reasons provided by the UK government. A number of options ranging from a two-month delay, which will coincide with the elections to the European Parliament, to a 21-month delay are under consideration. As Andrew noted, there is an intense legal debate on whether the extension could go beyond the two months because it may actually require the UK to participate in the European Parliament elections. According to a legal opinion requested by the German Parliament, the UK's failure to hold these elections where it is a member of the European Union would amount, according to the legal opinion, to a violation of the active and passive voting rights of British nationals. The legal services of the three institutions in Brussels, that's the Parliament, the Council, and the Commission, will be exploring avenues to accommodate a potential extension beyond two months in case the UK would make such a request and the EU would want to consider it. The President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, stated that an extension of the UK's withdrawal date would be rational, as the UK is unlikely to approve the withdrawal agreement by 29th of March. The, the Council has already authorized the President of the Council and the President of the Commission to sign, on behalf of the EU, the withdrawal agreement. And also, Andrew noted that the next summit of the European Heads of State were clearly among the issues would be a length of an extension to Article 50 uh, to be considered is 21st, 22nd of March, just a few days before the Brexit date. The EU institutions have also been preparing for a no-deal scenario and have identified key areas and actions to be taken at the EU as well as at the member state level, and some of them have been very clearly outlined by our colleagues throughout European capitals. In terms of the Commission's contingency action plan, and that was the plan adopted on the 13th of December 2018 on preparedness for the consequence of a no-deal Brexit, there was, on the one hand, a series of legislative proposals and delegated acts concerning a series of sectors that have been adopted or are in the process of being adopted. They range from car-type approvals, to the apportionment of tariff rate quotas, very important for the agricultural sector, to energy efficiency, visas, air transport, and so on. And also, a major part of the Commission's contingency plan concerns citizens. So this has already been explained by some of our colleagues in terms of what are the member states' actions in this respect, and this is very much you know, what the Commission instructed member states to do so. 
The Commission has issued also more than 80 notices to stakeholders containing information about the things that will change post-Brexit if no deal is achieved, and have also recommended steps that stakeholders should consider preparing for a no-deal scenario. The notices are not part of the Commission Contingency Action Plan, but they do provide useful information for economic operators to allow them to prepare for the no-deal scenario. To date, the EU has not announced any special customs procedure to facilitate customs process in case of a hard Brexit. So, so far, the standard customs rules will be applied to other partners that trade with the UK post-Brexit. In its communication on Brexit preparations, the Commission encouraged member states to use customs facilitation measures available under current legislation. These facilitation measures are subject to authorization by member states, and it is a pretty burdensome process. From a trade perspective, the contingency plan, in addition to the tariff rate quotas, very importantly, again, for the agricultural sector, and there are also some measures that affect customs issues, and mainly you know, joining the customs IT systems before the Brexit day, so EU stakeholders are encouraged to do so. And on the export licenses, you know, the European Commission will add the United Kingdom to the list of countries for which an EU general export authorization for dual-use items will be valid throughout the EU. And so as things currently stand, it is clear that a no-deal scenario will have dramatic consequences both for the EU27 and the UK, and both parties still do not have sufficiently comprehensive contingency plans. Back to London, Susan. Laura, thank you very much. So that concludes our little tour of um, the EU27 views um, from different member states. And now we're going to turn to a spotlight on our real estate practice. Uh, and Ben Willis is going to um, talk to us about um, Brexit uh, impact on leases and frustration. So, Ben, over to you. Thank you, Susan. So, I'm going to briefly talk about the re recent decision in the case of Canary Wharf and the European Medicines Agency, which has been seen as a relief for the UK's property industry, and it confirms that the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, remains bound by the terms of its lease of offices at Canary Wharf in London, notwithstanding Brexit. So the case centres on the EMA's lease of a large office building at Canary Wharf, which were or its London headquarters, pursuant to a lease entered into in 2014, further to an agreement for lease entered into in 2011. Now, this lease, importantly, was for a term of 25 years and didn't, didn't contain any right for the EMA to terminate the lease early, and it doesn't expire until 2039. The current rent payable is £13 million a year, and the EMA has estimated that its total future liabilities under the lease, including rent, will amount to approximately £500 million. So, back in 2017, 2017, the EMA wrote to Canary Wharf informing them that if and when Brexit occurs, the EMA would be treating Brexit as an event of frustration of the EMA's lease, the result of which would be that as from 29th March 2019, the EMA will not need to comply with its obligations in the lease, including, importantly, the payment of rent. As a result, Canary Wharf sought a preemptive declaration from the court 
that Brexit does not frustrate the EMA's lease. Now, frustration is a legal principle of English law which can bring any contract, including a lease, to an end so that the parties are no longer bound to perform any future obligations under that contract. Now, although any contract can be frustrated after it has been formed, the circumstances in which frustration actually arises are pretty limited. And a frustrating event must be one which occurs after the contract in question has been entered into, is so fundamental as to strike at the root of the contract, and is entirely beyond what the parties could have reasonably contemplated at the time that they entered into the contract, and it's not due to the fault of either of the parties, and further, it has to make any further performance of the contract impossible, illegal, or radically different from that originally contemplated by the parties. As a result of these principles, not many contracts are held to be frustrated, and the parties will usually rely on carefully drafted force, force majeure provisions, which give parties rights to terminate on the occurrence of certain events, rather than relying on the legal principle of frustration. So in a complex and detailed judgment running to over 90 pages, the English High Court has found in favour of Canary Wharf that the lease was not frustrated by Brexit. Now, the judge did acknowledge, sensibly, that Brexit was a seismic event, and although Brexit could have been foreseeable in 2011 when the agreement for lease was originally entered into, it was only relevantly foreseeable for purposes of frustration rather later than 2011 that the UK would be withdrawing from the EU. However, the judge placed significant weight on the fact but when the lease was negotiated, the parties had clearly contemplated the EMA disposing of its interest in the lease before 2039, which is why the lease contained provisions for the EMA to assign the lease to another party or to sublet its offices. Therefore, the judge's view was that the parties had both considered the possibility of the EMA leaving London and the lease provided for this possibility. And it didn't matter that the parties may not have considered that the actual trigger event for the EMA leaving London would be the UK's withdrawal from the EU. In addition, the judge held that it would not be impossible as a matter of European or English law for the EMA to continue to hold the lease post-Brexit. And indeed, there was no legal requirement for it to leave the UK as an automatic consequence of Brexit. Therefore, Brexit was not a frustrating event. Now, in terms of the implications of this case, this case has attracted a significant amount of attention, particularly in the property industry. However, it's worth bearing in mind that the decision of the court turned on very specific facts of this case, including the very particular characteristics of the EMA as a European institution. Therefore, a decision in the EMA's favour would have been unlikely to result in all manner of commercial tenants successfully arguing that Brexit is a frustrating event, legally speaking. Of course, frustration applies to all contracts, not just leases. And although the decision was quite fact-sensitive, the principles set out in this decision will be of relevance and have some wider application to other contracts. That said, as I mentioned before, parties will often include detailed force majeure provisions which govern their rights to terminate on the happening of certain events. And the parties are much more likely to turn to these provisions rather than seek to argue that a contract has been frustrated. Now, just one final point, it is worth mentioning that since handing down judgment, last week the judge has granted the EMA permission to appeal to the English Court of Appeal. 
and when giving his reasons for granting permission to appeal, the judge considered that an appeal could have a real prospect of success. Therefore, this is not necessarily the end of the road for this case. Ben, thank you very much. That's really, really interesting. Um, so, uh, just to finish up, um, how Hogan Levels can help uh, help you. Um, for further help and guidance, please feel free to visit our dedicated Brexit hub, which you can find at hoganlevels.com forward slash Brexit. This contains all of our latest thinking on issues around Brexit, including a practical roadmap. And you can also sign up for a regular Brexit bulletin email on the hub uh, by pressing on the button at the top of the page. We'll be holding uh, more webinars in this series, Navigating the Negotiations. Um, please look out for further communications. And given that quite a lot may happen between now and the end of the month, um, these may become rather more frequent. But we will let you know as and when uh, we're ready to do another one. Finally, as always, if you want to discuss how Brexit might impact on your business, how you can best prepare, please get in touch with any of us by contacting a member of the Brexit Task Force, somebody on this uh, webinar, or by emailing us at brexit at hoganlevels.com. So with that, a big thank you to all of my colleagues from right around the EU, uh, and also to all of you who've joined us for today's webinar. Thank you.